I mentioned this last week in my sermon that I was more excited almost to teach this lesson than I was last week's lesson, but um, <clears throat> not that I didn't like last week's lesson. I think they go together perfectly. We're going to look at the pathway to power for the Christian in this. And, and how we're going to see this passage broken down is very sweet. It's uh, four basically pictures of four different groups in this passage. And each one and how they respond to the Lord. Some are familiar. The Jews rejecting are familiar to us. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. The Greeks rioting. The sons of Sceva faking it. And the church confessing. And so my prayer all week and really the last three weeks has been that we as a church really see the power of this passage because it's something that we're afraid of in our flesh. It's something that um, we don't give a lot of practice to and we're going to today for good, for a good purpose, I think. That we might experience, not simply know, but experience the true life that Christ is for us. Not simply that he has for us. But Christ himself is said to be our life. He is our life. And he dwells with us to be that life. And this church at Ephesus got it. They got it. And it's, uh, it's beautiful to see. So we're going to consider that, all right? So if you want to join me, Acts 19, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. We'll consider this first group. Paul has arrived at Ephesus, if you remember, he ran into those 12 disciples of Apollos, I believe, and brought them into the fuller persuasion of what the gospel in its fullness is. That Christ finished the work on the cross, he was raised from the dead, and now we are baptized into his name, not simply a baptism of repentance. And picking up in verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. Now you remember when Paul first came to Ephesus and spoke in the synagogue, they wanted him to stay. They, they didn't simply outright initially reject the truth of the gospel. They wanted to hear more, but he didn't stay at that point. He left. He comes back and he stays for three months, reasoning in the synagogue every week, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 9, But when some became stubborn, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, that is the disciples. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I'm not going to camp out here long, but I do want to say a few quick points. One, Paul remained true to preaching to the Jews. This was his habit. He would always go to the synagogue first. And he did have some fruit in preaching to them. Verse, verse 8 says they were some persuaded. However, after three months of preaching and reasoning and, and dealing with them, he saw a notice change in them. They hardened their hearts and they became disobedient and started speaking evil of the way. And at that moment, Paul's tactic changed. He left the synagogue, took the disciples with him, and instead went to a Greek school, the school of Tyrannus, and preached out of that for two years. In, in Greece, they would take from 11 to 4 o'clock off. This is probably when Paul used that time when they weren't using the school to preach daily. So much so that the text says all of Asia hears the word. I love Paul 
reasoning with the Jews for as long as he did. It shows that Paul would, as he says in Romans, gladly trade his own salvation if by chance they would come to faith. He always maintained a love for the Jews, even though this pattern we see of the Jews rejecting the gospel pretty much stayed true. He never gave up on them. He would always go to them and he would always preach until they would harden their heart and reject it. And at that point, he'd go to the Greeks. I wish that we would demonstrate, and I I know I need to demonstrate this more, but Paul, there's a point where ministry can become unfruitful with people. Jesus warned, don't cast your pearls before swine to trample on. When people have heard the gospel and heard the gospel, as long as they're open, as long as they're engaging, you bear with them. But there also comes a point when they harden their hearts and they don't want it anymore, you move on to other fruitful ministry. It's not to say that at some point in the future, those people who harden their hearts won't be broken. But it is to say at that moment, they're not ready to receive it. It's like ground that still needs to be plowed up before the seed can take root. And the plowing hasn't yet happened. Sometimes the Lord will accomplish this by handing people over to their sin, like Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, for the destruction of their flesh. That way they would learn not to blaspheme and receive God. But nonetheless, Paul sought fruitful ministry elsewhere. But he maintained constantly a love for his brethren according to the flesh. He said this in Romans 10, 1, My constant desire for them is their salvation. So he never abandoned that. Nonetheless, they rejected it. So Paul stays in two years preaching to everyone in Asia Minor who had come through Ephesus. We're going to skip out of order, and this is rare for me. But I think as far as the points I want to make, it flows a little bit better. So Paul has preached for two years. We're going to skip all the way over to verse 21 and look at the Greeks. After the church begins truly being transformed and the power of God begins to truly rest on that church, the Greeks incite a riot. Beginning of verse 21, it says this. Now after these events, Paul resolved in spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's wanting to leave Ephesus. He's wanting... to to go visit the churches he'd founded already in Macedonia and Achaia, which would be Corinth, Athens, all those places. And eventually he wants to make his way to Rome. So he sends off for two of his helpers in verse 22, Timothy and Erastus. But he stayed in Ephesus waiting for them. And while he stayed, verse 23, it says this, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, you remember last week, that's the, the seven wonders of the world. That was the temple of Artemis. He made many gods, silver shrines. Demetrius brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you imagine? And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. 
and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. There's a lot at stake with that. It was a huge moneymaker, the temple and the goddess of Artemis. Religion usually is. We see these kind of people on TV milking people for all they're worth. Religion can be big business. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Essiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with, with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple... Sorry, that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper to the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls, judges. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Obviously, that takes up the largest portion of our scripture. Yet, I'm not going to tarry on this point very long. I do want to make some points, though. It is Demetrius, the silversmith, we're told, who was a maker of idols who stirred up this crowd against Paul and his companions of the way. And he said this in verse 25, that our prosperity depends on this business. It wasn't worship for him, it was business for him. Paul says gods made with hands are no gods at all. The real threat, therefore, for Demetrius and the others was the work of their own imagination and hands was being threatened. That's the true source of all this writing. I want you to take note of that. These gods that they were making are no gods at all. They're pieces of silver fashioned in the imagination of men. But so strong was their love and desire for this thing, this creation of their hands, they were willing to put to death and cause a riot in Ephesus. The point is this. When the gospel begins to penetrate a society... Get ready for a strong kickback because the gospel will start touching on all these idols of the heart and those idols die hard. Those idols die hard. It's an interesting point to note. In this entire section with the riot, it all started with the threat that Christianity brings to abolishing the wealth that idolatry creates. 
We see here just how angry, how completely chaotic and irrational the crowd became, all because of their prophet being threatened. This reminds me so much of the American culture, the great God, the dollar bill, that so many, even us in the church, are wrapped and our hearts are entangled with. When you begin pointing out these idols, how hard and chaotic the pushback was with Paul. So the Jews, those who are closest theologically to the Christians, hardened their heart. The Greeks were different. Their idols were being threatened, and so they rioted against the way. But then the third group is really where I want to start transitioning and making our way to the main point that I want to consider, the sons of Sceva. So turn back to verse 11. So the Jews have rejected. Paul was in the hall of Tyrannus, reasoning every day in Ephesus. And during that two-year period, verse 11, it says this, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Little background here. The sons of Sceva, they were sons of a Jewish high priest, it says, which is a little strange because usually the high priests were in Jerusalem serving in the temple. Um, So maybe this man was just too old and, and moved off to Ephesus. And his sons took up this itinerant work of being exorcists. Whatever the case is, they wanted to emulate the power demonstrated through Paul. Verse 11 says that it was God doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So much that handkerchiefs or aprons that had simply touched his skin were taken and carried to the sick. And the sick were made well and evil spirits left them. Truly extraordinary. The demon's response to the sons of Sceva is interesting. I recognize Jesus And I know about Paul, but who are you? Wherever God is at work, church, so is Satan. Now step back real quick and look at this. Satan's got a three-front attack on the church going on in Ephesus. The Jews hardening their heart, persecuting the way. The Greeks rioting. And now he's trying to infiltrate as an angel of light. What would have happened if the sons of Sceva had been able to cast this demon out of this man? Paul's whole ministry would have been discredited, right? But here's what God exposed in these sons of Sceva. They didn't see that the power was of God. They thought it was of man. 
Christians are not only known by God, but they're also known by Satan and his demonic forces. It's a scary thought to think this demon said, I know who Paul is. I know who Jesus is. If you remember Jesus, when he got out of the boat in his ministry and he saw that man possessed with the legion, would the demon cry out, what have you do to do with me, Jesus, son of God? Is it my time? There is spiritual warfare going on in the church every day. Some are blatant attacks like we see with the Jews and the Greeks. Others are subversive attacks. And we've got to wake up and recognize the strategy of Satan. But just as Christians are known both by God and by Satan, the opposite can be said. Those who were imposters, the demons didn't know who they were. Matthew 7, 21-23, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, Those who cast out demons, those who prophesied in the name of Christ, what's Jesus' word to them? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, because I never knew you. See, people who are fakers, who truly don't have the Spirit of God living in them, even if they're doing religious service, are no threat to Satan at all. Satan's not going to divide his own kingdom. Jesus said it. Kingdom divided will not stand. So these men were no threat. What Satan was trying to do was attack the gospel ministry that Paul had going. And the demonstrating power of God. G. Campbell Morgan said this. Victories cannot be won by people who are so far apart from the one who wins the victory. Victories cannot be won by people who are so far apart from the one who wins the victory. It was God performing these miracles by the hands of Paul. The sons of Sceva, because they did not know the one to whom power belonged, they said to the demon, I adjure you. They thought the power was found in them. I love this, this point to consider. Because it's so emblematic of the church today. So many within the church are truly more like the sons of Sceva, powerless when it comes to spiritual things, than like Paul. Some are truly believers who are powerless nonetheless in their flesh because they haven't learned how the victorious Christian life is to be lived. And so they they venture into religious service only to be overtaken and humiliated. This is so emblematic of the church today. Zealous for religious things. Even willing to embark on spiritual services. They recognize the power associated with the name of Christ and his followers. And yet they're completely void of it themselves. And all of this. People who are amongst the religious truly born again people are neither known by God nor by demons. They simply are. They lack any power in their life, either because they're not God's child or because they're trying to attain power still by their own flesh. Why is this important? In our flesh, church, here's what usually happens. Many people come to faith in Christ. But they continue trying to walk with Christ the same way in which they did previously in the flesh. 
There's what's called by many theologians the exchanged life. When we come to faith in Christ, the only way as Christians we will ever know experientially the power of God is through that exchanged life. Christ died for me, I'll die, lay my life down for him. Romans 12.1, after Paul expounds on what the gospel is, he concludes this, I adjure you, I beg you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because he presented his for you. It's coming to a place to truly know the power of God in your life, to overcome those indwelling sins that you may have, to overcome apathy in your life, to be truly who God desires you to be in Christ. It's that complete separation from the flesh. The sons of Sceva were trying to attain it in the flesh and got overcome. But the interesting thing is, the church at Ephesus, I believe, was still there as well. Until they saw what happened to the sons of Sceva. And then they recognized, my life as a Christian is not what it should be. It's not what God called it to be. And I see why now. And I want to read now the point I'm going to focus on for the rest of our time. The Confessing Church, verse 18 through 20. The smallest portion of scripture yet is the most profound for us today. So fear comes upon, verse 17, everyone at what happened to the sons of Sceva. The name of the Lord was feared and his name was extolled. But the thought continues also, verse 18 says, connecting it to that. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Let me explain just a few things before we really dive in. I want you to note this carefully. So many people, if you, if you were to survey your experience as a Christian, one of the hardest truths to really confess is to look at your own life as a Christian and then look at someone who doesn't profess to know Christ and see that both are equally powerless. Would you agree with that? That's a humbling thing to have to confess. My life has no more power than the sons of Sceva in it. And I know I'm a believer. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. Why is that though? Why is that? That's not how Christ came. That's not what he wants for us. But yet it's so true for so many of us. And I am part of this problem. I've been at this place in my life, church. So I'm not preaching simply to the choir. I've been in those places of powerlessness over sin. But we've got to be honest. Why is that? We're going to answer that in a minute. But what the church does is they come confessing. They divulge their practices. Verse 19, those who practice the magic arts, they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And it says that it was equal to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, if this is referring to the drachma, the, the silver coin that was worth one day's wage, if you were to... To simply say 
a $12 wage in today's economy. What is that? If they work a 10-hour day, it's $120. You know what the value of that is today? It's pushing $5 million that was burned. $5 million. But you don't see them batting an eye. I made the point several weeks back, and I'm not going to get into the Racino aspect, but I made this point that there's some wealth that can be attained that doesn't prosper the soul. It doesn't matter if you have it or not. It will only corrode your soul. Here's one example. They were making themselves rich through these magic practices while still trying to pursue Christ. They were holding on to their sin yet trying to have the Lord as well. And this happened to the sons of Sceva, this overcoming of the, the, the demon overcoming them. And they recognized, my life is equally powerless. Why? Because I'm still holding on to these things. I've not truly surrendered or consecrated myself to the Lord. And when they saw that, the sorrow of heart pushed them to say, it's done. They made a clean break with their past. And moved on. I want to talk about this aspect of fear for a second before we move on. The fear that overcame all, including the church. It's so beautiful to see the main point. When we think we have power over the flesh, when we think we can simply change the way we live or tweak some things but hold on to other things, we deceive ourselves and we still remain powerless in the flesh. When we come to that point where we recognize my utter desperation for God in my life, and we're truly willing to say, I'm cutting off the flesh in my old life, I'm done. Fear is the fruit of that. Fear fell upon all who lived in Ephesus, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. There's two things. The fear that fell upon them and the magnification of the name of Christ. Those who had believed saw rightly themselves in holding on to the worthless things that they had. What are magic books compared to the living resurrected Christ? When we compare it in that light, it's vain. And yet we have the same dichotomy so often in our life. They rightly saw that these things were nothing compared to the power in the name of Jesus. So fear overcame them. When they truly saw that and confessed that. How do we know that fear overcame them? They confessed their sin openly. Now I'm going to do a test with you. If I asked you to stand up and start confessing your sin. Those secret sins. What just happened in your heart? Did any of you go... That demonstrates how active your flesh still is right now. You get my point? When God says, will you confess that to me? What we want to do is we'll say, we'll start bargaining with God. We'll say, God, I'll, I'll confess it, but I'm going to go off privately. The text says, no, they did it in front of all. Something happens in your heart when you truly do business with God, your focus doesn't worry about people. Your focus turns toward God. I don't care what people think of me. Here's who I am, God, and I must do business with you. You see, the, the fruit of being forgiven, you know what the fruit of being forgiven is? It's fear. 
It's fear. Let me read Psalm 130, verse 4. Very simple verse. It says this, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. See, the church recognized their powerlessness just as the sons of Sceva. And yet they claimed to be worshiping the living, all-powerful God. And it broke their heart. So they came confessing. They didn't care what people thought. They didn't care what people saw. They didn't care what people heard about them. Because for the first time, perhaps, they were willing to be exposed. There's, there's something interesting that I've considered before. <clears throat> you all have heard of the 12-step the programs, the AA programs, for instance, <clears throat> alcoholics. One of the things they have to do is confess before everyone else, right? Now, they don't necessarily lead the person confessing to Christ. I mean, I, I know there's... I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, why, why are those programs successful to some degree? Why is it? Because when you're willing to truly confess who you are and say, here's who I am, I'm a mess, and it's ugly. There's a profound humiliation that takes place. But that's the pathway to freedom. Let me read this quote to you. A.J. Gordon said, The consecration by which we put ourselves utterly into the hands of God to be subject to His will and to be swayed by His Spirit is the only true pathway to power. So here's where the practicalness of this sermon comes. And I'm not asking you yet to just throw up your hands and, and say who you are, where you've been, what you're struggling with. But every single one of us has the flesh nature. Why is it? Why, this is a nagging question for churches, and, and ours included. Why is it that we don't see the prevailing power and presence of God in His church today? Like we see in Acts. Is it because God's changed? No. It's because we're still the church at Ephesus before confession. That's why. But we continue in our religious worship, wanting God's presence, wanting God's blessing, wanting God's power, and yet not willing to truly, truly break from our sin. That's why power is withheld. That's why blessing is withheld. The only pathway is through confession. But a word of caution, the moment the believer makes any determined advance toward holiness, that moment... The evil one moves up his picket line for desperate resistance. It's in fact what our historical passage shows. Right when the church begins confessing and coming to the light and disclosing their wicked practices, even as Christians, that's when the riot started. What's going on in the spiritual realm is Satan starting to freak out because people are truly being consecrated to the Lord. You know what? When, when Satan can keep Christians entangled in sin... Saw the battle. He's won. God won't withhold. God won't bless that people. Remember how, how Balaam got God to judge his people? It wasn't by pronouncing curses on them. The Jews and the Greeks can write all they want. If people are walking with God, it doesn't matter. Curse us. The gospel will excel. But you know how judgment came on the sons of Israel? 
Balaam said, have them mix themselves with those prostitutes. And God, they'll judge themselves. When Satan can entangle you in sin, that's all he, he needs. Let me go back to the illustration I just gave you. If I, if I challenge you to start confessing your sin now, immediately you feel that sting like, oh, I can't do that. There's the battle. I can't do that. Your mind starts thinking, what will people think? There's the battle. Do you recognize it? What will the community think of me if they know what I've been doing? What will my husband think? What will my wife think? What will, what will my friends think? That's the battle. Satan is already working, trying to deceive you from the purpose and blessing that God has waiting for you. But what was the result, church? Verse 20 says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. By the way, I didn't do this for you. Does anybody know what confessing means? Because there's, there's some confusion when you confess sin, you're not telling God something he doesn't already know. That's the first thing. God knows our hearts. And he knows our actions. We might hide those things from others, but God is not full. He sees it all. The word confess literally means you agree with. You agree with. So when you confess sin to God, you know what you're doing. You're saying, God, I agree with your assessment of who I am and what I'm doing. What that does is it brings your heart and your will into alignment with his. And now, God can work in you. Because when you're disjointed with him, when you're not willing to agree with his assessment of you, powers withheld. There won't be any activity of God in your life. When you confess, you bring your will and your heart into alignment with him, and now, boom, you're in a position to be helped. So you see, guys, the church... If we want help, what's the only way to do it? I agree with you, God. I agree with you. But the result we just read, verse 20, that's when the word prevailed. It's the first time that word is used, prevailing word. Not only did it increase, it prevailed mightily. And I don't think Luke has simply it prevailed with others. It prevailed in the church. What we need today is the word prevailing upon us in the church today. In fact, the word used here of confess is not just the regular word confessed. It's, it's got the prefix ek in Greek, which means out of. Ekklesia, the church, is the one out of the world. This confession is... They confess out in front of everybody. It's a stronger word than the normal word confess. That's the work of deep humiliation. But notice it was that person, it was that church, who out in front of everybody who was willing to lay their pride bare, that God said, boom, here's my power. I love this picture. The church being surrounded by the Jews who were hardening their hearts, the Greeks stirring up riots in order to decimate the believers, the sons of Sceva trying to infiltrate, Satan masquerading as an angel of light. And here we see the church at Ephesus coming into spiritual maturity by becoming infants in their own eyes. It's completely backwards. 
How is it that the church is filled with power today? Continuing prevailing power despite attracting demons, despite attracting persecution. How is it that the church prevails? The church at Ephesus was surrounded by its enemies. It's because the church was surrounded that they humbled themselves. They saw not the greatest threat being the Jews, not the Greeks. The greatest threat was themselves. And they surrendered to the Lord and came to the light. The Old Testament book of Micah says this, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What this church learned early on in their walk was the truth that Paul expressed in 2 Corinthians 12, where he said, God's power is perfected in what? Weakness. Paul would conclude, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Therefore, we will gladly boast in our weakness so that the power of God might rest in us. That's Ephesus. They learn that when I'm weak, hey, I'm still practicing idolatry as a believer. Can you believe it? In that weakness, that's where God met them. It's one of the great truths. It's the antithesis so often in Scripture to what the world thinks. The world thinks that it has to be strong to prevail. They try to constantly build themselves up. I am great. I am beautiful. I am... You fill in the blank. Do you you know we are bombarded through TV, through media, through advertisements with that message. Build yourself up. Think well of yourself. Don't think bad of yourself. Think positive. Think... Do you understand why that's so prevalent in our culture? Because when you start believing that, you have no way to the power of God. The exact opposite is true in Scripture. No. There's even a popular Christian song. It's the number one song, not just in Christian radio, but secular radio. It says, you say I am strong, God, when I think I'm weak. No, God says you are weak, and I'm strong. It's a lie. We're not strong people. We're not good people. We don't have it together. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The flesh is ruined. But the church at Ephesus got this. They saw, I'm a sinner. And I'm humbling myself. I don't care who sees. And that's the one God poured his power out on. This antithesis is so prevalent in scripture. Let me say this. Anybody know the first beatitude? Of the greatest sermon ever preached. The first words of the greatest sermon ever preached. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know what that means? You're poverty stricken in spirit. You have nothing to offer God. You are spiritually bankrupt with nothing to offer. And Jesus says blessed are you. Do you see that antithesis? He does not work or bless the way the world thinks he should. God... I want you to bless me because of all the accomplishments. How great I am. No. It's when you're weak, then you're strong. He goes on to say more of these antitheses. Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Again, not like the world thinks. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. And blessed are the peacemakers. And last of all, blessed are those who are persecuted. All are an antithesis 
to the world. We don't only confess and divulge our sin, in, in other words. We want the security and power of God through that confession. I read an illustration one time. This is an old illustration, but you see it today. You see these electrical outlets all over the, the building. We have them in our house. They're so common we don't think twice about it. We know that electrical current is running through there, able to power whatever it is we plug in. And yet until we plug it in, until, until we take hold of that power that's inherent in it, nothing works. But once that arm of faith plugs into that source of power, everything lights up. We as a Christian church are like the church that knows that there's power in there. We, we sing about it, we talk about it, we study about it, and yet we haven't really plugged into it yet. And it's evident by the powerlessness in our life over sin. It's evident by the lack of worship. It's evident by the carnality that pervades. It's evident by the apathy that's still present. And church, we're all in that boat. How do we overcome it? Take hold of the power. How do we do that? You begin by confessing. Let me talk to you about what confession accomplishes. First, confession brings us out of isolation and into the fellowship of the church. You know sin wants you to be alone, right? If anyone's ever struggled with a secret sin, the most terrifying thing when you're in that sin is coming to the light and confessing it. Sin wants to isolate you from your spouse, from your friends, from fellowship. And when we refuse to confess it, it does just that. Confession begins the work of bringing you out of isolation and into fellowship. Sin wants you to be alone. It will take us away or keep us from the community of faith. And the longer we go without confessing, the lonelier we become and the more destructive sin becomes in our life. Anybody ever experienced that? I have. I have. But when we confess our sin... That's when power is broken in it. Anybody who's truly had a, a moment in their life, even as a believer, where they've come to the light and they've, they've been exposed, will testify, it is the most painful thing you can go through, and yet you wouldn't trade it for the world. Because you finally tasted freedom. You finally tasted power. You finally begin to taste what grace is. Before you just knew about it. So confession, confession brings us out of isolation and into fellowship. Second, confession is how we bear our own cross. Jesus said this over and over in his ministry, take up your cross and follow me. What's that mean? Well, we don't take up a literal cross. We know that. Well, then what's it mean? Confession in the presence of another believer, as I said earlier, is the most profound kind of humiliation. It hurts. It makes us feel small. It deals death blows to our pride. And that's the whole point of it. That's what it meant, it's meant to do. That's bearing the cross and crucifying the flesh. You see, Christ is your sin bearer. His Holy Spirit in the church is our burden bearer. Through confessing our sin, we're identifying with Him in the shame of it. But you will never identify with Him in the penalty of it. 
Does that make sense? When we refuse to confess our sin, you know what we're doing? We're doing what Hebrews says. We're letting Christ be crucified all by himself outside the camp. The one we claim to worship, the one we say we're in allegiance to, there he is outside the camp hanging on the cross by himself for you, for me. When we confess our sin, we're taking up our cross and saying, you know what? I'm identifying with the shame of this because it's mine, but he's paying the penalty. I'll never have to pay. The least I can do is be shamed by my sin because it is shameful. It deals the death blows to our pride, which we desperately need. That is how we bear our cross, church. So let me put it this way. When we in our hearts, and and many of you are probably wrestling with this right now. When we in our hearts are saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to confess. You know what you're saying? Lord, I'm not going to take up my cross. I'm not going to do that. And Jesus says, but I took it up for you. And that's the terms of discipleship. That's my terms. God has demonstrated his love for us by giving us his son. Then our response after we've received his son is to give ourselves to him. It's commonly said that we give our hearts to Jesus to be saved. That's that's not right. We receive him first. We can't give what we don't have. There's no, no value to him. We receive him into our hearts first. And then we give in response. That's consecration. That's what the church of Ephesus is doing. They'd received the Lord Jesus. They are believers. But they had yet to consecrate themselves to him. And say, Lord, here's my Romans 12. One moment. I'm offering myself up. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. It needs to happen in the church today. And it's at that point. When we do that. That we break through to the life that we read about. The new life. Jesus does not try to redeem your old nature and just tweak it. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to put your sinful, Adamic nature to death. He's not trying to make you better. He's trying to make you die so that he can live. He puts us to death. And then he gives us a qualitatively new life, not simply quantitative. It's 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 a resurrected life that only is found in Christ. This new life, the scripture says, is Christ himself in the person of his spirit. Paul said it this way. We've quoted often Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So when we're refusing to confess our sins, what we're actually trying to do is to improve our sinful man and attain to the life of God by means of that. And we'll never get there. You know what will happen in your life if it's not happening now? You'll continue To struggle with the same old sin. Whatever it is. Lust. Pride. Anger. Covetousness. I mean you name it. We're we're guilty of all of it. And it's bad. And you'll never overcome it. Because we're not dealing with it the way God has had us. And wants to deal with it. And so we just stay how we've always been. Confession is that first step forward. Where we break through. To the life that's truly found in in Jesus. The beauty of this is. I want to read a passage to you. This is out of Ephesians. The church that we're talking about. This is Paul's letter to that church. And his prayer for that church was this. 
He prayed that he, God would grant to you, the Ephesian church, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's clear both from scripture and experience that as a Christian, I only get power from God by his spirit in proportion to the entireness or lack of self-surrender to him. I only get power from God by his spirit in proportion to my willingness to say, I'm coming clean or I'm not coming clean. And God will let you stay where you're at. The last thing confession accomplishes is assurance. Through confession of sin, we give way to the spirit to overcome our flesh. Galatians 5. And his spirit then will bear witness with ours that we are his child. Romans 8. It's the difference between security and assurance. If you're truly a child, you're truly a child. You can't be unborn again. Any different than my children can't be unelsworth. Doesn't happen. But God will not allow you to experience the assurance of your salvation when we're walking in disobedience. And so you'll constantly struggle with that. Am I truly a child or not? Because his spirit's not bearing witness with us. Why? Because we're not dealing with him. We're refusing to align our will, confess. So we go on struggling. We go on struggling, spinning our wheels, spinning our wheels, spinning our wheels. But through confession, we're coming clean. We're aligning ourselves with God and then His Spirit. Attests to our spirit. It's the blessing of, of assurance. I believe when Jesus warned the church of Ephesus in Revelations that they had abandoned their first love... I think their act of love was first demonstrated in this act of confession. And their abandoning their first love was that they then afterward began to just take up religious duty without that heart. You see that? Maybe that's your testimony. Maybe you had a powerful experience with the Lord early on and you find yourself just stagnant. Maybe you need to return to the heart with which you received Christ and you were willing to be shamed. To be humble. To say, Lord, I'm filthy. Maybe that's what's going on. But nonetheless, Jesus had to eventually call this church back to their first love. I think he's referring to this passage right here. Where they're willing, in the sight of all, to burn their magic books. We need to come back to that. All the things that Jesus identifies can be carried on in the flesh that he mentioned to the church of Ephesus. Their deeds, their toil, their perseverance. Our churches are full of this stuff. We, we labor, we do things, we, we help each other. We're, we're about that. All that can be done in the flesh. We test so-called apostles and find them false. We have perseverance. We endure for the name of Jesus. Same as the church at Ephesus, and yet... You can do it without love. Why? Because we're closing off our hearts to what's truly going on in there and just carrying on that work. So through confession, here's the appeal. Make a definite and final appeal to God for your entire consecration to Him. And what that means is this. Maybe you've been born again. Maybe you haven't. In both cases... You need to make this a decided event in your life. You need to say in your heart, I am no longer willing to stay where I've been. 
make a final appeal to God. Seek not only what it means, but what it means to experience this consecration with power. Make it by God's grace a definite and irrevocable event in your walk. A life to be lived for God. (coughs) I want to read you an ending testimony of a very famous man and then a quote. George Whitfield, perhaps one of the most powerful, greatest preachers, top, top three to five ever. Benjamin Franklin was so awed by this man uh, for many reasons, but he used to marvel at George Whitfield. When George Whitfield was consecrated to the ministry, he had sought for a long time the power of God in his life to no avail, but he, he kept seeking, kept seeking. Here's what he said on his ordination day. When the bishop laid his hand upon my head, if my evil heart does not deceive me, I offered up my whole spirit soul and body to the service of God's sanctuary. Let come what will, life or death, depth or height, I shall hereforward live like one who this day in the presence of men and angels took that holy sacrament upon the profession of being inwardly moved by the Holy Spirit to take upon me the administration of the church. And I highlighted there, I can call heaven and earth to witness that when the bishop laid his hand upon me, I gave myself up. That's consecration. To be a martyr for him who hung him upon the cross for me. I want to read this quote by Pastor J.H. Jowett. He preached a sermon that became a world famous sermon. It's quite fantastic. The title of that sermon was called The Ministry of a Transfigured Church. Here's what he said. What infirmities gather together in the synagogue? What moral and spiritual ailments are congregated in every place of worship? If the veil of flesh could be removed and the inward life revealed, how we would pity one another and how we would pray. And how many lives should we behold a spirit bound together who could no way lift herself up? But the blessed Lord still goes into the synagogue. Rather, he anticipates our coming. And he's present to heal the broken in heart and to bind up his wounds. Then why do so many spiritual cripples leave the synagogue cripples still? Because they don't give the healer a chance. It's exactly what we've been talking about, church. We're going to do something we don't often do. We're going to give you a chance to go before the Lord. If any of you want to come before and pray... I've got pillows up here, and we're going to play a couple songs for you. And you, this is your time to do business with God. If you want to come before Him, the message this morning was an encouragement. I hope you see that it's in our weakness, it's in our brokenness, that God meets us. It's when we refuse that He withholds His presence and power. So you go before the Lord now.